Welcome to Where Hope Grows, a podcast curated to tell the inspiring stories of land stewards, ranchers, and farmers who are on the front lines of the regenerative revolution. Interweaved with wisdom inspired by Mother Nature, these journeys are testaments to her capacity for healing ourselves, our agricultural systems, and our planet. This is Where Hope Grows. Hey, everyone. This is Taylor Collins, and you are listening to Where Hope Grows. This podcast is brought to life by the support of Force of Nature, Rome Ranch, and of course, the grace and beauty of Mother Nature. Today's episode is slightly different, but all these episodes are iterations, and they're always evolving, just like nature, just like you and me. When we're static, that's the worst thing that could happen. When when nature stops moving, you know what that's called? That's called death. So here we are. We are dynamic. And the original intention of this was for Robbie Sanson. He also goes by Casparis. He is my co-founder in Force of Nature, a longtime friend. He owns bison out here at Rome Ranch. The, the original intention was to have Robbie come out and him and I were going to give a tour of the ranch. But as in nature, we iterated, we pivoted, we evolved in real time. We ended up focusing on the six principles of soil health. And so we think this is a really great episode. It's a wonderful source of information. If you're managing land, if you are new to regenerative agriculture, if you have a backyard garden or a, a balcony where you're growing some damn tomato plants, pay attention because these are principles inspired by the architecture of nature. They will move you in the direction of regeneration. They will move you into positive impact. So sit back, enjoy, and get ready to never look at soil the same way. It is not an inanimate object. It is very much alive. Okay, Robbie, man, it's uh, it's so wonderful to be with you on this lovely spring day here in Central Texas. I bid you good day, sir. It is a beautiful day. Should we go suns out, guns out? Oh my God. If it wasn't so damn windy, <laughs> what a magical podcast this could be. Uh, you know, there's some people that always have their shirts off. One, Kyle Kingsbury. Oh man, I'm so jealous. He has a good reason for it. Uh, yeah, I'm realizing that we should all be um, more sun exposed because there's a lot of beauty in that sun exposure and a lot of good things that are happening to our metabolic system, immune system. And there's a lot to learn from the plants. And this is one of those lessons. So I think that's kind of one of the reasons why we're here. It's like, let's we wanted to get together. We wanted to celebrate Mother Nature. We wanted to, you know, almost recreate a farm tour here at Rome Ranch, although this is not about Rome Ranch. This could be anywhere, but we really wanted to talk about the principles of soil health, what they look like, how to apply them, and then just kind of talk through our thoughts on each of these principles. And you and I have done, man, how many tours have we done together, do you think? So many that it's easy to forget. <laughs> That's a lot, because Robbie never forgets. He's like an elephant. <laughs> I wish that were true. Um, It's funny that I've known Robbie since middle school and if you would have, if, if someone would have asked you when you were like a 12 year old lad, would you be one day giving farm tours on a regenerative ranch? 
with Taylor, what would you have said? Oh God, no way. No, <laughs> no. I, you know, I was like, like ever, you know, we weren't talking about being farmers or invo- being involved in agriculture and we were doing aptitude tests and what you want to be. You know, I think I wanted to be a professional baseball player right before I wanted to be, you know, a doctor. Uh, <laughs> and I even went into college pre-med, you know, so. Wow. Aptitude test. I think I was told that I should just be a, a garbage man, which is fine. I have a lot of reverence and respect. That's an important job and role, but I just, I couldn't really see myself being a garbage man, even though I do love, I feel like those guys have the opportunity to be suns out, guns out and be shredded by picking up a lot of trash. Taylor, you, you were a garbage man. <laughs> Lest you forget. <laughs> is, is that not what recyc- that was more recycling? recycling. Does? No, that was recycling. I was upcycling, downcycling. I, yeah, let's stay focused here. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, man. So let's, let's just do this beautiful reenactment of a tour out here on this beautiful landscape and celebrate the lessons of mother nature through these principles and these guiding principles, you know, you and I did not make these up. We've spent a lot of time researching and thinking about these things. Um, but really the pioneer of this concept, these ideas would be Ray Archuleta, ex NRCS soil scientist, ecologist, and then Gabe Brown, mad respect, North Dakota, super amazing regenerative farmer doing some really incredible things at scale with plants and animals. So giving credit where credit's due. Those are certainly the inspirations for me. I don't know who to give credit to. Like one of the sad things I I realize the more we go down this path and journey is how much of this stuff we're having to relearn from hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago. And um, certainly those guys deserve a ton of credit. And they're absolutely, like you said, the, the giants whose shoulders we're trying to stand on and, and, and support this cause and mission. Yeah. I, I like that though. I, I like when, when I hear you talk about that, it makes me feel like there's ancestral wisdom within the 250,000 years of our human humanity and our human experience that's passed along in genetic coding that, that our ancestors knew a lot of these principles and they lived by them and they were passed on through genetics. And, and it's really now our opportunity to re-express those genetics and tap into co-creating with mother nature and one another. And so that's really what these six principles are about this is how do you regenerate your soil? How do you create a net positive return on your ecosystem? How do you form uh, an agricultural system in mother nature's image? Or put more simply, how do we, address and mitigate the many challenges of the most commonly practiced form of agriculture on the planet. This can, can chemical industrial commodity, conventional, uh, centralized agriculture system, right? Like the way you said it is beautiful, but what I'm trying to point out is, um, just how inspiring and exciting that is juxtaposed to the reality that we have where our agriculture practices, how we produce food across the globe is presenting an existential threat, not to the planet, just to the human involvement role and species, um, on, on earth. Yep. I, I love that these six principles that we're about to dive into, you know, these are guiding principles that help people like you and me make management decisions, um, that are in mother nature's image. And so we get asked all the time, you know, where do I start? How do I start beginning to heal my soil? How do I start, um, regenerating my, 
whatever ecological context you're in, if it's, you have a backyard garden in Austin, Texas, or you're managing, you know, 500,000 acres in New Mexico, or you're managing land in freaking Siberia, these principles that we're about to go over, um, although they're different in unique contexts, which we'll go into, these are all principles that are guided by nature. And so they work in every single context, but you can modify them. But I think that's the beautiful part. So if you want to get into regenerative agriculture, if you want to get into soil health, take notes, because this is a really beautiful way to start co-creating and understanding how ecology works. Should we start kind of just rattle off the the principles in the order that we're going to cover them and just to kind of give a grounding and this is what they are and then we'll, we'll dive in. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. You ready? Number one, cover your soil. And these all have kind of different names. I say cover your soil. Yeah. I think Gabe wrote is armor, armor the soil. I know you like to say armor your soil because you're a soldier. I mean, it just you're feels light like, and shining armor. Yeah, we got, we got a cause. We got something to fight for here. Okay. Cover your soil. Number two, biodiversity. I've also heard people say community dynamics. That sounds real smart, but I'm going to dumb it down and say biodiversity. Number three, you want to do that one? Number three, green plants and living roots year round. Green growing plants and living roots year round. Can't wait to talk about that one. Number four, minimize disturbance. That's tilling, that's spraying, that's overgrazing. We call it chemical and mechanical disturbance. And that always points back to that conventional ag versus regenerative ag. One is chemical warfare on nature and one is working within nature's context. Yep. Okay. Number five, I'm going to let you do our favorite one. Ah, animal impact, baby. Oh, I knew you were going to say that exclamation mark. I added the, I added the end. (laughs) You added the emphasis. Yep. Celebrating the beautiful wisdom of the ruminant animal as a part of an ecosystem. Number five. And then number six, this one's not very sexy, but it's important. Context, understanding your context. This kind of ties it all together. So without further ado, let's go into cover your damn soil. Ready? Okay, so in my opinion, public enemy number one in my ecological context, which is Central Texas, it's a semi-brittle environment. We get long, long periods of drought, Um, mixed in with heavy rain events, um, high summer temperatures. You know, if you don't have your soil covered, all of the cycles of nature are shattered. So we're talking about the water cycle, the mineral cycle, the nutrient cycle, the energy cycle, the community dynamics, and we'll go into those in more detail. But for me, until you armor your soil, if you have bare soil exposed to the intense environmental elements of the hottest days of summer, the coldest days of winter, the flash floods, the droughts, you are going to not be a successful land steward. You're going to have a lot of issues. So what do you think about that? You know, I think it's a great intro and and, and I know you were going to dive into some specifics, but I think like one overarching theme as we go through all these principles is these aren't developed in a lab, right? These are taken from watching and learning from the wisdom and balance and harmony of nature. And when you think about what bare soil is and armor, you know, in almost all circumstances, there are exceptions, but in almost all circumstances, nature, when there's bare ground, certainly ground that has been made 
to be bare by the result of human intervention, nature almost immediately looks to start putting plants back on there, armor back on there. Right. And so there's a lesson there, right? If you're doing something that's counter to the will and desires of nature, you're, you're working against it. And that's probably going to result in a degenerative outcome. Um, and I just wanted to kick off knowing that that's going to become, um, a guiding principle through all of these. I love it. So the armor for the soil, whether it be mother nature's first line of defense that you spoke of, which would be kind of your low secession species, a lot of broadleafs, a lot of quote unquote, undesirable weedy species, you know, they're doing so much to protect, to armor that soil. And, and one of the things that comes to mind for me, it's impressive. Do you, do you know the terminal velocity of rain? So like a raindrop at its maximum speed smashing into the earth. What, what, what do you think that is? You probably know the answer. I think we've talked about it a few times. <laughs> I think I've heard it. It's, it's over 20 miles an hour. Yeah. It just depends how much I want to exaggerate that day, but Katie calls me out if I say more than 25 miles an hour. So she's cool with 25 miles an hour. All right. We'll go with Katie's science there. But that's crazy. So if you have this rain event where these raindrops are hitting the surface of the earth at 25 miles an hour and they're not being buffered, they're not being slowed down by some kind of green growing plant or some kind of carbon laid down on the earth. Guess what happens? Capping. It's like a miniature explosion. If you could look at that raindrop smashing into bare soil in super slow motion, it'd be amazing. It's like a bomb going off. And, and what happens is that soil is getting hammered. It's getting capped. And then you couple that with the rain event being over, the sun coming out, it's July, it's 100 degrees, and it hardens the surface of the earth to where now, over time, you're, you're capping it in a way that future rain cannot get into the soil. Seeds are not allowed to express themselves and germinate because the soil is so hardened. This is like that experience where you try to dig a dig a hole with a shovel and you you break your freaking shovel because the earth is so hard. Or you're trying to drive a spike into the ground for a camping tent or whatever and it just nothing happens. You might as well be rock. Yeah, so that 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 rock soil that's that's not um a healthy state of soil. You want soil to, when you walk on it, you know, think about taking off your shoes. You want it to be soft. You want it to have bounce. You want it to have porosity. You want it to have oxygen in it. And you actually know a little bit about oxygen and soil. What is it that you always say? I don't want to put you on the spot, but I get my mind blown by this fact. Yeah, it blows my mind too. So health, healthy soil should be roughly 50% air, you know, and there's a lot of reasons that happens when there's, when there's functioning life and organic matter in the soil, it kind of sticks together. Like you think about the porous structure of like a chocolate, a cake, right? Um, and that, that, that space, that capacity allows, again, like Taylor said, oxygen, atmosphere, air, things like that to flow through. And it also allows for water to be retained and infiltrate effectively into the ground um, in environments where alternatively it won't, which compromises resilience. So what happens? What happens when the soil surface is capped from bare soil and you get those rain events? Where does the water go? Yeah, sadly, um, the water, and it's not just water, right? It's, it's topsoil and it's all the chemicals that have been sprayed on it and any other trash or pollution runs off and goes into um, waterways, goes you know through streams and creeks and rivers down into oceans, and it can lead to a, a ton of catastrophic outcomes, not just on the acreage that was being managed, but um, all of the cascading downstream effects. 
So that, that reminds me of what's the difference between effective rainfall and total rainfall, where typically the way that we think about rainfall as a, as a civilization, as we, you know, we look at what's your average annual rainfall, but that's, that's perhaps the wrong lens to look through. That's the, that's the wrong question. And the right question should be, well, how much rainfall are you effectively capturing? Because when you have this bare soil, you are ineffective at capturing rainfall. You are ineffective at feeding plants. You're ineffective at recharging the aquifer. You are effective at being inefficient. You are effective at polluting waterways like you just alluded to. But, you know, one of the things for me that it's just a really powerful example, a demonstration of the impacts of covering your soil is we've done this together, but you can come out to the ranch in July where there might be over a hundred degrees out here for damn near 60 days straight. And you can put just a simple meat thermometer in the soil where it's covered, where there's a lot of green growing plants, a lot of diversity. And that soil temperature will read 85 degrees in the middle of summer. It's incredible. And then to contrast that, go over to a field that might have a lot of bare soil. Maybe it was overgrazed, or maybe it was an old farmed field or a tilled field. Put your thermometer in the soil there. If you can even get it in, you might need a hammer. But what happens is that soil could read 140 degrees on the same damn day. I mean, like, that's just so powerful because if you're a, a microscopic organism, if you're a bacteria, if you're a little fungi, if you're a protozoa or a nematode or an earthworm, why, why on earth, how could you ever thrive in an environment that's not conducive for life? I mean, we cook meat at temperatures of 140, 150 degrees to eliminate potential pathogenic bacteria that could make us sick, but we're essentially nuking the entire soil food web. Yeah. And it, and it works the same in reverse. And, you know, for us, this is really relevant because it's the environment we live in. But again, from a context perspective, when you go further north and it gets colder and you have ice and snow and tundra or whatever else it may be, you know, healthy functioning ecosystems, again, standing on the foundation of healthy functioning soil systems are keeping it warm, keeping, again, um, biological activity and life uh, functioning and, and balancing us within the parameters of not too hot, not too cold, but just right for where you are. That's cool. I've seen um, demonstrations where it could be, yeah, 30% warmer with snow, like, like this, say North Dakota, snow on the ground, a couple inches, and it's 30, 30% warmer in areas that have soil coverage. Whereas compared to a field, maybe feet away that have been tilled. And so that, that, I mean, that's just powerful. That's just really cool objective data. Can we go back to the water cycle for a second? Oh, I love the water cycle. It's so important. Yeah. I heard that water's pretty important too. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think the, when we talk about some of these major challenges that I think we can make it relatable for the common person, um, you know, we talked about effective use of rainfall and kind of got a little sciencey maybe for some folks, but at the end of the day, you know, the expectation is it rains, the rain goes into the ground. It, you know, creates life. Some of it fills reservoirs of different types that we can, that other land-based life can drink from. And, and, and then it evaporates and goes back up into the sky and makes clouds and comes back down. But when we disrupt that cycle, like you've talked about with some of the, the, the principle, you know, capping and a lack of armor and so many of the other things we'll talk about that disrupt that cycle. It leads to significant, um, like a, the, some of those catastrophes that I always talk about. And I think that's like three of the big ones would be, um, drought, 
impact of drought, you know, loss of resilience, loss of food security, struggles and, and community social issues. Um, oftentimes the inability to create food, that currency of last resort leads to war and civilization and, and so many, um, times throughout human civilization. And then, um, floods, same thing in, in reverse, right? We talked a little bit about a, a runoff and erosion. Um, but again, you know, you would be amazed at, I, I think your stat, or if we haven't shared it yet, but, um, you know, what happens with these massive rainfall events where you get. 10 plus 20 plus inches of rain in really short periods of time, there are soil systems that have the capacity to absolutely infiltrate all of that and have no flood. And in fact, build a reservoir of water uh, to create resiliency and stability in that system for the future. But when we degrade soil, we eliminate that and we cause floods and floods take land and they take houses and they take trees and they take, um, again, uh, you know, crops and create food insecurity and all these things I just laid out. And then the other is weather. You know, we talk a lot about warming or, you know, what to what extent the humans contribute to the warming of the atmosphere. But definitively, we impact weather in our small systems through a lack of moisture in our soil. You know, I think by some estimates and you can fact check me, um, you know, up to 40 percent of local precipitation is coming out of the soil. And if that soil is bare of water and it isn't holding water, then we are becoming more arid. We are, we are losing precipitation and we are um, becoming less resilient and we're damaging that entire ecosystem and anything and anyone that depends upon it. Um, which I think is really crazy. I'm so glad you touched on that. Cause I think that's a powerful point. And, it, and one of the things with that point, so you have these individual farms that are, um, not cycling water correctly or contributing to atmospheric pressure or atmospheric temperature being higher during the summer, but then it's like, well, what happens when you have a hundred farms in one community? So it goes from like this small disturbance of a weather cycle or a weather pattern. Now it's getting larger. And then when you look at the entire country farming um, in a way that is not conducive for nature's functioning cycles, then now you have large scale weather patterns and changes. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Like I think, I know we lament about it in Austin as we watch storms coming through towards us and then they hit you know, closer to the city and then they dissipate. And when you talk about the urban heat map, right? Like there's so much heat in the concrete and the reflection from all these, this, this man-made, um, uh, city and it dissipates the, the, any water that water's coming in from, um, not from the small weather system, but a large weather system. And it even takes away that, which again, co further compounds the problem. But when you look at what you just said, not just on farm, but like how, how, ma how massive is the scale of this? You know, we, the, the U S is about two, 2.2, 2.3 billion acres. And we practice agriculture on about 900 million acres of it. So about half of the landmass of the country that the greatest country on the planet that's ever known America. Um, God bless you. We're, <laughs> we're, we're doing this. And so think about now how profound that impact could be when you multiply it times that scale. You know, I just feel inspired. A lot of this stuff you touched on. And we also learned from Alan Savory, Savory Institute and, one of my favorite quotes, it's just so obvious when you hear it, but it's so perfectly applicable here, especially when you just kind of mentioned bare soil a couple of minutes ago. But Alan Savory says, it's not drought that causes bare soil. It's bare soil that causes drought. So just let, let that sink in. Let that percolate. Okay, so number two, principle number two, um, biodiversity or community dynamics. Now, 
for me to kick this one off, I always kind of like have this little meditation moment where I ask people to close their eyes, um, go back into their mind where the best, most beautiful vacation they've ever taken or the most breathtaking landscape that they've ever stepped foot on. What does that look like? What does that feel? And as you're closing your eyes, you know, typically people are and they're they're reflecting on a rainforest ecosystem where they're reflecting on maybe coral reef. So swimming with like this beautiful reef system and this amazing, abundant ecology. And, and you have to recognize right there that those are some of the most biodiverse ecosystems in all of nature. And so there's beauty in biodiversity. Now, to contrast that, in modern chemical industrial agriculture, we raise monocultures. So monocultures are, are one single species. So whether that's a monoculture of grass, if if a farmer has a hay operation, that's a monoculture. Or if a, a pig farmer is raising only pigs, that's a monoculture. Or if someone's only growing corn or wheat, that's a monoculture. That is That doesn't happen in nature. That is um, a man-made construct that's breaking the cycles and the laws of nature. And in order to maintain a monoculture, you have to use other tools, other technologies like chemical spray, mechanical tools, um, and you're, you're essentially fighting mother nature. Biodiversity creates resiliency. And a really beautiful example of that, this is, is insects. And so in a high functioning ecosystem, there should be 1700 beneficial insects to every undesirable pest species, which that's mind blowing because if you're out there spraying insecticides, tilling the soil, creating a monoculture. Well, the, the first species that get eliminated are those beneficial ones and you're left with the pests that no one wants. Um, and so that's a really awesome example of how biodiversity creates resiliency and balance in an ecosystem. And, and, and it's such a reductionist approach to managing a system, right? You're like, hey, I don't like this one thing, so I'm going to just nuke everything. Right. And, you know, we talk about pest species, but there's, as you noted, there's so many favorable insect species. And some of those certainly are favorable because they manage balance with pest populations. But some of them are favorable because they catalyze necessary function and cycles and, and offer other contributions to, you know, the, the balance within the ecosystem. And I think one thing that always just blows my mind is you know, we'll talk about microbes and, you know, single cell organisms and other, um, you know, um, we'll call them microscopic life forms that are part of the flora of, of the soil. And you, you'll probably share something along the lines of there's more life in a tablespoon of, of, of healthy functioning soil than exists, you know, humans have ever existed on the planet. Right. But, you know, taking a step back beyond the microscope and just looking at, you know, life, sentient life, as we think of it, you know, insects, birds, mammals, reptiles, amphibians, and so on. You know, there's something like in a healthy system, a billion life forms per acre. Um, and when you start to do, exercise some of these practices, not only, you know, removing habitat, but, but certainly spraying insecticides, again, to eliminate one or a couple types of pests, you eliminate everything. You eliminate all that potential. You eliminate all that good. Um, you know, shout out to vegans and vegetarians who think that they have an ethical high ground for the rest of us. Like this is what a plant-based system that you are relying on promotes absolute catastrophic loss of life to the scale of billions of life forms, even on, on a per acre basis. And, 
uh, of food production. And, and the other thing that's like insane as we get into regulation and we get into um, misnomers and and the sort of um, challenges presented by how we uh, teach and educate in our ag system and colleges and schools is there's been papers published like the USDA research has been done. Like where you spray insecticides, you are more likely to have an imbalance of unfavorable species um, than if you had not sprayed at all. So why are we spending money and poisoning our land to have the opposite of intended effect? Um, and there's so many perverse incentives as to why that exists. We probably won't get into today, but I think the point here is diversity is wonderful and insects are really important and we need them and we're losing them at a global scale at an unbelievable and remarkable rate. That includes pollinators. So <clears throat> got to give a shout out to another one of our personal heroes, probably pretty high on Robbie and I's older man crush scale. Like I would bet that if I said, Hey Robbie, who's your biggest man crush over 60 years old, we might have the same guy, but Will Harris simply says, um, nature abhors a monoculture. I, I just think that's so direct and so simple because to your point here, you know, a diverse ecosystem is teeming with life. There's synergistic relationships, there's competition, there's harmony, there's balance. And it only happens when that system is more complex. When we reduce it, it becomes more fragile. And so, you know, like for me, plants, they're they're really important in the nitrogen or the nutrient, the mineral cycle, the nitrogen cycle. When you have a diverse mix of plants, they're all performing a slightly different role. Some plants are really wonderful pollinator resources. Some plants are really great wildlife habitat. Other species of plants have deep tap roots. Um, other plants are, are nitrogen fixers like legumes where, you know, 78% of the earth's atmosphere is actually nitrogen. And so why would we not use plants to fix that nitrogen into the soil to feed the biology, to feed, to feed the plants? Instead, in this very reductionist mindset, we are growing a single species of plant, which is by all practical purposes, an ecological desert. It's not conducive to life. And then we're importing synthetic chemical derived nitrogen fertilizer, which is, you know, an extremely energy intensive process to to make this you're mining a lot of resources and we've we've read that it's up to 40 percent of this chemical nitrogen fertilizer can be lost due to runoff in the first heavy rain after it's applied which has catastrophic effects on waterways leads to toxic algal blooms and entire dead zones in the ocean and don't forget herbicides right i mean the same reductionist mindset of hey there's a weed and we'll talk about weeds there's a weed i don't like so let me spray this toxic poison on the ground um, you eliminate everything that's favorable that does all those wonderful offers all those wonderful services um, and then that also flows through right and the combination of fertilizer herbicide pesticide all these things um, absolutely destroy creeks and streams like you said and then you know they lead to dead zones and oceans again all these seemingly disparate massive global scale issues um, tie back to these um, some of these challenges. And I, I think this is an interesting tie in too of like, um, you know, even, even glyphosate, right. You know, that's, that's an herbicide. That's a, a weed killer. It's roundup. Um, you know, seeing that show up in, in, in breast milk. And, you know, I think a study was done recently in the last year that said something like a hundred or something like 70 or 80% of participants had glyphosate showing up in their urine. And, you know, that's, that's because of, of the scale to which we're spraying this stuff on our food. 
um, and then ingesting it. And I think that for folks who don't know why there's reservations around GMO plants, um, one of the big factors amongst others is that if you alter the genetics of a plant so that you can spray poison directly onto that plant and eliminate other ones, but not that one, you know, that's, that's a big part of the reason for, for GMOs. And I think some of the, re the reservations and resistance to GMOs is, Hey, I don't want to make it easier for you to poison my food. I don't want more glyphosate showing up in my urine and breast milk. So biodiversity is key. If you haven't already gotten that in one way to really think about this, um, through a different lens is what, what happens if you eliminate biodiversity in the human diet? And then the analogy or the, the comparison is what happens when you eliminate biodiversity in the soil. Um, and so like what would happen to human health if all you were allowed to eat for years of your life was corn or wheat or soy, just one single species for every single meal of the day, you know, you would be, you would have major nutrient deficiencies. You would, you would be sick. You would probably die too, since those particular crops I mentioned as Robbie had previously mentioned are doused with carcinogens. But the point is that our own unique microbiome makes us more resilient when it's teeming with life, different bacteria, different viruses. You know, there's, I remember Zach Bush saying there's 10 to the 31 different viruses in our own human body at any given point in time. That's 10 with 31 zeros at the end of it, which is like more stars than the ecos than the entire solar system. That's some diversity right there. Some of these facts blow my mind so much, I can't even conceptualize what that means. <clears throat> we'll, we'll talk about that probably later with like erosion and soil loss. But in this one, like it's that's so profound. It's I dumb it down to there is more non-human cells in your body than there are human cells. And that is important and that is necessary. And the soil is, is no different. Your, your microbiome or gut flora uh, is just as important to you as the soil microbiome or the soil flora is as the foundation to any healthy functioning ecosystem. You know, I think it's, I think it's cool to talk about levels of nutrients and the atmosphere and the role. And we'll talk about how that gets brought into you know, the, these plant systems that, and, and soil systems. Um, like you mentioned nitrogen and fixing plants and things, but on the, you know, it comes to the other side too, right? We talked about the soil aggregate structure and how to create that caking effect to allow for infiltration and, and functioning life. And again, where does, where do these minerals come from? Um, some of these minerals come from these awesome networks of mycorrhizal fungi, like the largest living organism on earth, um, that can literally transport essential, um, compounds and, and, and minerals and, um, from long distances to make sure that where there is a void or an absence of it, that that area has what it needs to, to thrive. Um, and some of it comes from rocks. You know, you look at people have seen tilled fields where there's rocks all over the place and people are removing rocks. And it's like, well, where does, where do some of these minerals come from? Well, those rocks break down in the little minerals. Um, and, and a huge part of the way they do that is because of carbonic acid. Shout out to Nicole Masters for that one. But, you know, not not to get too nerdy, but again, carbon is going to be a theme here about how carbon is really a hero. And I think we villainize the the wrong the wrong thing. It's like villainizing animals, villainizing carbon like these things are essential. Um, and it's these these this healthy micro flora or the rhizosphere and um, that allows these cycles to occur where these carbonic acid exists that mines minerals out of rocks and these plants exist that help mine minerals and, and nutrition out of the atmosphere and deposit into these systems that get upcycled to 
other animals on the ground and then ultimately omnivores and you know herbivores omnivores carnivores and then we all die and feed the soil you know it's really cool it's so cool have you ever i've 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 experienced this on multiple levels and it blows my mind but you know you'll be out on a ranch digging a hole or a farm and it's like the areas where you have the highest organic matter the highest amount of biodiversity the most coverage of bare soil um you like put your shovel in the soil and it just goes in so much easier. But then even if you hit a rock, like a huge honking limestone rock, two feet in the soil, your shovel just goes through it. it just like disintegrates. That's amazing to me. That's exactly what you're saying. And then the flip side, everyone's experienced trying to dig a hole in some shitty soil and, and literally you bend your damn shovel. The rocks are just in, impenetrable forces. That, that's awesome. Yeah. Isn't iron deficiency a pretty big deal? Iron deficiency, magnesium deficiency, selenium, calcium. Don't we want, don't we want that stuff back in our food systems? Yeah. The way you get that back in your food system is with uh, a a biodiverse ecosystem teeming with different plants, um, mining those minerals, working in synergy. So let's do it, man. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode of Where Hope Grows. It should be abundantly clear that we get really excited about soil all things bright and beautiful all creatures great and small our intention here and one of the founding principles behind our company force of nature as well as this podcast is to connect you to the realities of the natural world that surround us specifically how agriculture can play a critical component in regenerating and restoring ecosystems when done in mother nature's image so if you want to be a part of this movement say you live in the city you're an urbanite you're not managing land you're like what the heck can i do you can vote with your dollars you can head over to forceofnature.com and you can purchase meat that feeds your family feeds your soul but also feeds the soil at a global scale and so That's forceofnature.com. And in an interesting way, Force of Nature doesn't even want you to support the brand. They don't even care for your business as long as you are hunting food yourself, supporting a farmer that's within your regional ecosystem. You're shaking their hand. You have a relationship with them. That's what's up. Force of Nature is there as the tertiary opportunity to avoid all the bullshit out there and eat nourishing regenerative food that's in alignment with your own values and your soul. With that said, back to my co-founder, the CEO of Force of Nature, Casper Sanson. Okay, let's go to number three, green growing plants. Having a root in the soil, performing the brilliant capacity of photosynthesis year round. What does that look like? Can we just maybe start with photosynthesis 101 elementary style? I love doing this one because it's one of the few things I'm actually smart enough to share because it's so simple. And we did. We all learned. We all learned this probably in maybe the fourth or fifth grade. But the version of it I like is um, we all know that we breathe oxygen and exhale carbon dioxide. And we know plants breathe carbon dioxide and exhale oxygen. Um, and you know, I think that's just like, people are probably rolling their eyes. Like, why is this asshole saying something so dumb and simple? But I think it just connects some really important thoughts, right? So when those, what's really happening is 
these plants that are green and have, you know, chlorophyll and all, all the things that help them execute this insane process is um, they bring in carbon dioxide and with the support of the sun, the most powerful and awesome energy force in our solar system, um, convert that carbon dioxide um, into nutrition to feed that plant and um, and then further to feed the microbes in the soil, um, some sugars and some other things through exudates and, you know, things that they offer into the system in order to get, you know, minerals and other things in return. And then, like I said, they, they release oxygen in this process as a byproduct, but the only thing that's left behind when CO2 goes down and O2 goes out is C, it's that carbon. So they're sequestering carbon out of the atmosphere and depositing it into the soil and into the structure of the actual plant itself. And that's where the carbon belongs. I, I just want to reiterate that CO2, carbon dioxide, carbon, two oxygen molecules. That's what creates that molecule. Um, I know, I know, I know that there's carbon is so popular and people talk about it all the time as there's, there's too much of it in the atmosphere and there is. Um, and I think most folks are, you know, have opinions and are aware of interpretations of what that can do and why that, why that can be an issue. But I don't think enough people understand how much of a crisis it is that we don't have enough carbon in our ground. Um, and that we're all carbon-based life. We all rely on carbon to live. We rely on carbon to f for, our, for our food systems. Um, carbon is a hero um, for biology on, on this planet. And um, I don't think we should be villainizing it the way we are. And I don't think we should be trying to figure out how do we how do we remove it from our environment by extracting it out of the atmosphere? We should be focusing on how do we restore it back to where it's supposed to go, which is in our soil systems. Yep. You just described the carbon cycle. And if, if anyone's going to argue that we have too much of any type of carbon, I'm going to just argue that we have too much human carbon. Because like Robbie said, I'm carbon, you're carbon. I think we're hopefully good enough, worthy carbon to be living. But um, we, we, we need to cycle as much carbon back into the soil as we can because there's some dramatic implications of having carbon in the soil. It's, it's like the root of almost everything that is key and foundational for this soil health conversation. And so one of the big factors that we talk about um, is organic matter, soil organic matter, which is going to be um, based on how much carbon you have in your soil. And there's different ways to think about organic matter. But when we purchased this ranch six years ago, just for some context, we had less than half a percent of soil organic matter in most of our old farmed fields. Now, historically, we should have been at like four to 8% organic matter in this part of the world. The reason that that matters is for every 1% soil organic matter percentage point you can improve your soil by, you can store 30,000 gallons of rainfall in a single acre. And so kind of one of the most powerful visualizations I like to, to say here is, you know, we have this beautiful field we're looking at it's a hundred acres, which is a little bit, um, it's a little bit like if you can imagine a hundred football fields put together, it's like a little bit less than that, but you get the size perspective. hundred acres is pretty big. So when we first bought the property, half a percent of organic matter on that hundred acres, we could only capture one and a half million gallons of rainfall at any given point in time. Anything more than that was, was runoff. It was lost. Our soil wasn't effective. It wasn't a sponge to where we could capture that and utilize it and store it. Now, fast forward six years later, we are at 4% organic matter in that same field. 
So what a rain event looks like today is that in this 100 acres, we're able to capture 12 million gallons of rainfall. And that that effectively allows us to exist at a point in time where we have drought cycles. Um, we can still grow green growing plants. We can hold, hold that moisture. We can utilize it. We can feed our animals. We have habitat. Um, and then we are also like all these beautiful byproducts we talked about. We're, we're helping to regulate and control uh, an ecosystem with the pr- appropriate temperature. And when, when we we talk about all the roles of diversity, you know, obviously plants are a huge part of that, right? It's like soil, plants, and then the rest of the life on top that, you know, has, has its role and plays its role in both taking and giving um, to those other two. Um, and I talked a little bit about photosynthesis, but the cool, and you talk a little bit about the makeup of the atmosphere and how, what else they're depositing and extracting and helping to um, fuel the system with. And, and, and the, the cool thing is like, have you ever noticed that all these plants have, are, some are tall, some are short, some are broadleaf, some are narrow leaf, you know, all of that is maximizing the surface area, or as, as we say in, 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 in the science part of this, like the photosynthetic capacity of any, of any given area. Um, and I think, you know, you point back to context and, 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 and armor, and again, all these principles overlap, right. But like, you have this amazing potential to do all that cool stuff we've been talking about year round. So warm season, cool season. And so often, um, we're, we only have one species, so we're not getting that, that full spectrum spectrum, right. Or we're only doing at certain times of the year. And that's why like, I want to emphasize on the tail end of this, right. Is it's growing plants and living roots year round. You know, you have this amazing opportunity to manage lands so that we're able to, um, incrementally stimulate these cycles and these positive things. Nature does this stuff really well, and we're just trying to emulate that, but we can take human ingenuity and science and intervention and apply these, this wisdom and these lessons in a proactive and intentional way, or in some cases we can accelerate. So like you, like you do here, putting down cover crops with intention, right? Some of those are fixing nitrogen and some of those are feeding animals and some of those are playing other roles. Like we've talked about, maybe they're just feeding pollinators. I say just, but you know, that's critical. And so, um, you know, just emphasizing where human management, where, um, you know, context and, 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 and all of this is really celebrated in how we apply these and how we have that responsibility and the ability to be stewards of these cycles within these systems is really cool. And for some perspective too, in conventional farming, the standard is, you know, you have your cash crop, whether that's like your corn, your wheat, your soy, that's really like the focus of your enterprise. And so you plant that species, single species. um, Then when it's time to harvest it, you harvest it. And then a lot of people go out there during what they would call, you know, quote unquote, the dormant season, and they just leave their field fallow or they till their field and they leave it bare soil. But what we're talking about here is like, why would you not during that dormant time where you're not producing your cash crop? Why would you not plant some other type of cover crop? And it could be cool season, it could be warm season, but you're doing all these amazing ecological services by planting something and you're feeding your soil biology, you're you are decreasing the amount of chemical fertilizer you will have to use that following season for your cash crop. Um, and so just, you know, some cool season crops that we, we use out here that are really amazing are triticale, rye, collards, vetch. 
peas, clovers, oats, plantains, chicory, and of course the native plants that emerge, that elect to be here. And then in the warm season, we're growing sun hemp, yellow blossom, clover, Sudan grass, beans, cowpeas, millets, sunflowers, okra. And then again, celebrating all the native species that want to co-create with us. And so that that is, for me, what a green growing plant year round looks like. And that's going to depend on your ecological context. But if we can do it here, you can do it damn near everywhere. Yeah. And I don't want to segue into the next section too quick, but we've already talked about the mind-numbing insanity of poisoning ourselves by poisoning our systems. And now that we're talking about the critical role that having plants on the land year round has, why would we, again, practice the insane um, practice of eliminating, proactively eliminating plants from the ground? I mean, that's what we do. We don't, like you're, we just discussed all the ways that we can introduce and add and promote plant life. But the, the, again, the conventional system right now, everything that's not corn or soy or cotton or peanuts is a weed is the enemy. And we, by any means necessary, exterminate it from the land and (laughs) we lose. It's so infuriating because we lose all of that benefit. You know, even I was just noticing walking up to the house today, right? There's thistles growing along your driveway. And it reminded me of in the past, you know, there were, there were areas of this ranch where there are no longer fields of thistles and there once were, and they, they went away themselves once they had completed the job that they were doing, which was, you know, cleansing and removing toxins from the system. You know, just had some work done around the house. And so right now they're doing that job here and they actually look really beautiful. And most people would be trying to poison those right now. No, you're so right. I mean, I've had neighbors who come out to our property and they, they damn near shit their, their pants when they see wildflowers. They don't even call them wildflowers. They call them weeds. And, and for me, you know, it's like, I look at the weed, it's not there by accident. It's serving a purpose. And when you look at it and you ask it, well, thistle, why are you here right now? And if you really listen and you really think about it, the thistle will tell you. And in in your circumstance, I remember when we had fields of thistles, hundreds of acres of them, um, and they were doing a job. They were covering bare soil. They were detoxifying the soil. Um, Why would you want to set that back? Because when you do set that back with chemistry or mechanical tools, what happens the next year? You have more thistles. The, the, The wildflowers, the forbs, the weeds... They're just laughing at you. They're saying, whatever you do to me, I'm going to put my roots down deeper and I'm going to double down because I don't really care what you think is right for this land context. I've been here. My species has been here for millions of years longer than you humans. And I know what's right. I know my role. I know my purpose. I know my identity. I love that you can talk to thistles. I think, I think (laughs) I haven't, I'm not fully bilingual yet, but I think that we can all um, do a little bit more listening and a little bit more observing of nature and seeing these lessons and, 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 um, allowing this wisdom to enter into our consciousness. Okay. I know you're really eager to get to number four, which is like minimize disturbance, chemical, mechanical, and Robbie, don't forget biological disturbance, like overgrazing. All of this is not good. So I think whenever we talk about minimizing 
disturbance, let's first talk about why disturbance happens in conventional farming. What does that look like and what's the purpose of it? Well, and again, I think hopefully these last couple points are going to be getting a little shorter and a little shorter because we've we were touching on these things throughout. And so we're not going to we're, we're knocking some of these things off early. But, you know, I think a, a typical conventional farm, whether plant agriculture or animal, sorry, plant agriculture, we'll, we'll focus on here is running a tractor across that landmass numerous times a year. Right. And that could be to till before planting corn and later subsequently to till before planting soybeans, or it could be to till um, just to eliminate weeds. Maybe we do that during a couple of seasons of the year because we have nothing else to do and we just want to burn a bunch of diesel um, to make pretty looking consistent rows of bare soil converting and degrading into dirt. Um, and then also in between some of those, we'll be running a tractor um, or some sort of an implement to apply amendments. It's a really pretty word for, you know, toxic substances like herbicide, fungicide, insecticide, fertilizer, or whatever else. Um, our, our local salesperson who pretends to be an advocate has convinced us we need to pay them in order to spray onto our land to do some job poorly that nature does brilliantly. I think it's important here. I feel like in the past, I'm guilty of this, and so are, so are you. Let's admit it. But I don't ever want to be polarizing. I, I don't, I, I want to be very thoughtful and mention that you never said don't till, never till. Tilling is evil. We're just saying be more intentional with tilling. It's, it's a tool. Not all tools are bad, um, but the way that it's used in a conventional industrial system where you have multiple tillage events, sometimes six, sometimes eight in a single season, even on an organic farm, you're just creating an ecological disaster. To me, when I think about a till going through a field, I think about this as like a cataclysmic biblical event that wipes off wipes humanity off the face of the map. It's like the organisms, that tablespoon of life that's greater than all humans on the planet since the starting of time. It's like without an announcement, their homes are destroyed. Their communication systems are eliminated. Their nutrient reserves are depleted. I mean, this is like the biggest like tornado, hurricane, flash flood, everything happening at once where you're just destroying that opportunity for anything living in the soil to, to work. You're starting at a, at ground zero foundation of 0%. You have to rebuild from that point on. Yeah. And I think that's a fair point. And, and, you know, I think I'm trying to impress upon people for emphasis, the degree to which some of these common practices are challenging. And I think it's important, you know, from that polarization perspective to note, I don't, let's assume positive intent here, right? You know, the green revolution was really trying to figure out how to produce more food to feed more people. Right. And I think most farmers and most ranchers are, are frankly struggling to survive. You know, they're doing, they're doing the best they can to try to um, keep their operation going, keep their, their legacy, their, their family's identity, purpose, generational wealth within that within their community and, and they're seeing people around them fail and, and they're desperate and they're, and this is a, this is a really hopeless, challenging 
um, in, in environment and reality. And so that's where I think I think I at least speaking for myself get really frustrated is saying these people used and fooled and fed um, lies and 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 have and have their hearts and minds closed to these other paths and opportunities by um, government bodies, government policy like the farm and ag bill, you know, profit driven groups with incentives that are counter to the well-being of consumers, the well-being of um, the communities of people that are producing our food, the welfare of animals, the lands and, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and, and hopefully we're able to not insult those people who are also victims in this, but, you know, help raise awareness that, hey, there's alternatives out there that you should be really considering and really excited about as so many others before you have um, transitioned into and, and restored hope um, in, in their lives, in their communities. So with um, the minimizing disturbance, chemical, mechanical, biological, essentially you're, you know, all these other points that we've covered you're breaking these principles too. You're creating bare soil. You're eliminating biodiversity. You're eliminating the green growing plant. And so there's just so much, there, there's a massive amount of death in conventional ag when we disturb the soil, when we disturb the ecosystem. And, and what I believe is my biggest nightmare, what I'm, what I am concerned most about this idea of disturbing soil is the implications for erosion. I mean, this was the formula for the onset of the Dust Bowl. And I know that's something that you're particularly passionate about, but let's go into erosion, wind, water. What, what kind of scale? What are we looking at here? Well, I, <clears throat> one, one last point, and then I'll, and then I'll, I'll, I'll take that uh, baton. <clears throat> you know, I think, um, it's probably a good spot within this conversation to drop this point, right? Like plant based gets a free pass and it should not. It's like, what do you mean? It's so frustrating to me that so much of meat alternatives or plant, like this item is plant based. This item is, it's made to look like meat, but it's made from plants or it's made to replicate meat, but it's grown in a lab. These things are seen as solutions um, because meat's evil, um, and, or the system that creates meat is evil or whatever the, whatever this, this fundamental premise of that logic, um, is based upon, but it's truly flawed, right? I think, you know, I will tell you that the plant agriculture system that is conventional, that is most commonly practiced, um, is worse than the animal agriculture system, but don't take my word for it. Listen to all these points we're making and then take a step back and draw upon your own, reality and experience and, and recognize that most of the stuff that we're talking about comes because of how we grow crops. Um, most of the spraying, most of the tilling, most of the bare, bare soil, most, most of the land. And then we're going to introduce a final concept about how animals are keystone and necessary and heroic in, in this process. And they've been here for a long time. They are a part of a balanced ecosystem, not an enemy to a balanced ecosystem. And you know, here's another, here's another one. Like we spend all our time focusing on, um, enteric emissions or, or, or belches, um, from, from ruminant animals, again, that are here for a reason and producing a, a byproduct of existing that is part of a cycle that has a role. Um, but we don't acknowledge that in order to grow row crops, nearly 40% of the legacy load of carbon in the atmosphere caused by humans, 
since the, the, the industrial revolution is from tilling the ground, meaning we run a disc through the ground, we turn it up, we do all the things we just disruption we just talked about, but that also oxidizes organic matter, meaning it, it, it removes electrons and basically in short sends carbon back into the atmosphere that had been drawn into the ground. And so we talked a lot about how we're, we were lacking carbon into the ground, but we didn't really emphasize why. And it's because we've been engaging in these practices that have been transitioning ground carbon to, you know, air, atmos atmospheric carbon. And so, again, 40% of the legacy load of carbon that people are identifying as a problem comes from just tilling, just that mechanical disturbance, which to me is profound. That is huge, man. I remember talking with you about chemical disturbance in conventional agriculture and, and realizing that there is 5.6 billion pounds of chemicals that are used in agriculture every year. And that's, that's damn near close to three quarters of a pound per human on the face of the planet. So like for every human out there, here's, um, three quarters of a pound of glyphosate for you to drink. We would, our species would be eliminated if we drank that, but we're not drinking it immediately. We're drinking it over time. <clears throat> and all of it is toxic and all of it is meant to eliminate life. And much of it runs off and spreads in that cascade that we talked about through systems. So talk to me about, about rainfall or, or wind erosion specifically. I feel like we just teased everyone with that. Yeah. So I'll just, I'll just talk about erosion in general, but certainly erosion can come from rain. We've talked about some of that and certainly it can come from wind. Um, <clears throat> so topsoil, this thing that we've been talking about for about an hour now is this incredible, essential, um, non-renewable resource. It's actually a very thin, tiny skin that wraps uh, much of the globe that we rely on to produce food that produces terrestrial life. Uh, and we're losing it at an alarming rate. I think there's been a quote about the number of harvests left or the number of years left um, that we're able to produce food. It's loosely scientific based, but I think the point, you know, about 50 harvests, I think the reality is we don't, we don't know that empirically, but the reality is there is a limitation because we are losing this stuff at an incredible rate and certainly at a much faster rate than it is created. Topsoil in nature takes 500 years, maybe more um, to, to create. Uh, and we're losing it through erosion at an alarming rate. I think, you know, just for the U.S. specific, I think we lose a couple millimeters of topsoil a year. That's a weird thing to say. I don't know what the heck that means. I don't know how to translate that. Right. But you think back to the Dust Bowl and how much soil was lost and how much problem, how much of a problem that created. Right. Again, food insecurity, starvation, economic collapse, challenge, communities, suffering, struggle, strife. Um, we know that was bad and that was all about erosion. And then even today, the NRCS says historically it was probably more, but now it is down to about 2 billion tons of topsoil lost in the United States every year. Again, these big numbers are really hard for me to get my head around. So this is where I got put my little my little pocket protector on and did some did some nerdy math to try to figure out how can I conceptualize conceptualize this and make it tangible to myself, let alone the average person. So <clears throat> 2 billion tons, not 2 billion pounds, 2 billion tons. A ton is 2,000 pounds. 
you know, the EPA says that that the number one water pollutant is topsoil, right? I mean, this is this is big stuff. Um, if you were to fill a standard truck, but like you have a truck, I have a truck. If we were to fill our, our truck beds. I think I could, any any person could probably look at that and be like, okay, I can imagine a big mound of dirt sticking out of a truck bed. Um, that is about um, two tons. So one truck bed holds about two tons. Well, if we lose two billion tons, then that's equates to about one billion trucks lined up full of topsoil in the bed. So I was like, wow, golly, that's still a giant number. That's not enough for me to really conceptualize this. So how like would that re- stretch across Texas? Would that stretch across the United States? Like how far would that go? You know, the long story short is it would take a row of trucks full of topsoil that wrap around the equator, not once, but 150 times to represent the amount of topsoil that we lose in this country in one year. And even that is such a profound number. You are like, hey, what's the population of the U.S.? How much is that on a per person basis? So that's about three pickup trucks mounted full of dirt or, or six tons per U.S. citizen. There's three citizens per house. So it's about almost almost 12 pickup trucks mounted up or, or, or 24 tons of topsoil for every household. So think about like a sky rise in New York City or like a big condo someplace, right? Like how, how much every single year, that is how much of this fine, again, non-renewable finite resource that all life is dependent on. Like if that's not existential, I don't know what is. That's just mind blowing. I hope, I hope people can conceptualize that because this is debatably our most valuable natural resource. When the topsoil is gone, it's going to be a lot harder to grow food as you've already alluded to it. But if we um, put into practice these six principles of soil health we've reviewed here, good news is you're going to be building topsoil way faster than 500 years. You can accelerate that in just decades. So not all is lost. Let's just transition into what is my favorite principle of soil health. It's the celebration of the brilliant co-evolution of ecosystems with animals it's positive animal impact dot 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 baby exclamation mark this is this is what's up you can't have a regenerative system without the ruminant animal as a part of it you can't build soil without a ruminant animal being a part of it the reason is because that large herds of ruminant animals and our most fertile food systems which included plants variety of plant species they co-evolve together So what happens when you remove, you pull off those animals, those keystone species from the ecosystem? Well, the plants fail to thrive. And so for me, I think about the areas in this country that, you know, have the highest amount of organic matter where we're where we're producing all of our plant based monocultures. It's like a lot of the states that start with the letter I and the fertility that we've been mining for over 200 years. That is the fertility that was deposited by large herds of bison. And not only bison, but bison, antelope, elk, deer, undulate animals. And so for me, this is just once you realize how critically important animals are to an ecosystem, it 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 now turns into it's never been the animal that was the problem because we've talked about how animals have been demonized. Eating meat has been called uh, destructive for the environment, uh, extractive, not good use of efficient resources, but it's not the animal that's responsible. It's the human mismanagement of how that animal 
should be co-creating with mother nature. Yeah. And going back to that, <clears throat> going back to that example I gave a second ago, you know, it's not, you know, plant-based agriculture shouldn't be, get a free pass and neither should animal based agriculture in its current conventional form. So, you know, so much of what we're doing is, and we talk about is how to improve the animal agriculture aspect of this. And I think what you just said, you know, one of the ways we simplify that down is, and, and even going back to your point on like trying not to be overly polarizing, right? So much of the discourse is centered around plant-based is better and animal-based is bad. Well, really neither of these is necessarily better or worse, right? They are both essential in the sense of we need plants and animals and thriving ecosystems harmonizing together. And we think of that as planet-based agriculture, right? It is agriculture that is suited for the environment and the systems and, and, and the roles on this planet. And, you know, I, I think the role of the animal as a hero, you, we may not fully appreciate, but we acknowledge in the way we think and talk about them, right? Like the bison example you just gave, they are a keystone species. Well, what does that mean? Well, they are keystone because they have a disproportionate and positive essential impact on a land system, even relative to their numbers. And there was a heck of a lot of bison. So for them to have an impact that's even more disproportionate than that, than the millions of animals in those herds should, should come across as, as, as rather profound. And, 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 and that impact, that positive impact is really in stimulating these cycles. And we've talked about water cycle, carbon cycle, nutrient cycle, energy cycle, you know, so many of these, these things. And, and that, that role that you said that bison would be playing, I mean, they are kickstarting, they are, Again, it's a circle, so nobody's really at the beginning, but, um, you know, they are really a catalyst for hyper driving. And you kind of mentioned that, like, we can manage these systems to accelerate some of these processes. Well, we can do that through animals. Yes. And, and each animal has its own innate gift and its own capacity to regenerate land. And so let's talk about ruminant animals. Let's kind of go through some of these things. But the bison, the cow, the sheep, the goat, they all have an architecture in their hoof that can actually aerate the soil, which is a really beautiful thing to do. And it allows oxygen to cycle in and allows water to infiltrate better. Animals like bison, they wallow. What is wallowing? Well, it's rolling in the mud or rolling on your back and getting seeds all tangled into your coat. And then every step you take, those seeds are falling off. Oh, and by design, your hoof also steps on those seeds and plants them at the perfect depth to maximize the potential for germination. You know, this is positive animal impact. It's cycling carbon, so oxidized grass that's above ground that humans cannot eat. We're not biologically engin engineered to. And then putting that through their rumen, creating protein sustenance for us and gaining weight, but also inoculating it and putting their own microbiome into the soil, putting that carbon in a form that's rocket fuel for soil biology. So, you know, that's just like, all this beautiful stuff that animals have been, that's the intelligence of nature. That's just like the beautiful architecture of, of, of God or the creator. It's incredible stuff. Well, and, and not only in, in that, like the amazing value of compost and inoculating the soil, right. But they also deposit water. You know, I think again, one of those mistruths and, and, and lies spread about the agriculture, animal agriculture industry is how much water it takes. Right. The truth is the overwhelming majority of waters, Green water in a grass-fed system, it's about 98% of the water an animal takes in is green water. It's from rain, 
it's like a pond in a river. It's like, it's natural. It's what anybody would expect and not have a problem with. And the beautiful thing is not only are they not taking away a water resource, but what they're doing is they're redepositing most of that back onto the land. And so go back to your example of tens of millions of bison. Imagine it being a dry season. Imagine how much urine and water then they're therefore applying and offering back in and redepositing within that system. And it's a cycle. It's part of the water cycle. And so like what an incredible role um, to help irrigate all of that land as well. Yep. And then you have your monogastric species like your poultry, your turkeys, your chickens, your ducks, your pigs, um, where, you know, these animals have different gifts that they give to the environment in a a co-creative capacity where they're scratching it hardened cap soil loosening it up allowing water to to infiltrate allowing seeds to germinate their uh, manure or their poop makeup is dramatically different than a ruminant it has higher levels of nitrogen and boron and different trace elements um they debug so you know it's like in mother nature's image you would have these huge herds of thousands of bison moving in being chased by packs of wolves or at least the pressure to move induced by large predator species and then once those bison came through massive flocks of birds would come in. I mean, we're talking billions of birds and those birds were serving an ecological role. They were scratching through that manure. They were spreading the fertility from this, you know, eight inch radius now to a four foot radius. They were debugging it. So they were ending the parasitic life cycle. Um, And then they were also stimulating that ecosystem in a way that has co-evolved for millennia. And so that what we're doing right now, what we're demonstrating, what we're talking about positive animal impact, it's emulating those cycles. And a lot of the basis for this is moving your damn animals. You got to move your animals. You have to move your animals, allow them to maximize their animal impact. And then you let that land rest. And if you get that cadence right and it's synced up year over year, you are accelerating this whole regenerative process in the most profound, unfathomable, beautiful way. I think we've done a good job of juxtaposing um, crop agriculture. Um, I think we should probably point to some of the bad things about animal agriculture, what not to do and why the system that we're celebrating here is, is so much different and better. And I think what you just said kind of highlights one of the practices that you should be doing to be emulating how these herds, um, evolved in symbiotic relationships with the land and trying to figure out how to find and, 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 um, amplify the opportunities where we can again, replicate that and, um, um, invest in and, and, and catalyze those cycles. And what happens again, sadly, and why we started a company with the tagline of reclaiming the legacy of meat is that's more often than not, not the way animals are being raised in our livestock systems. And so, you know, I think for the sake of time, we'll try to try to be brief here. Right. But these animals should be on the land performing these incredible ecosystem services and fulfilling their potential um, to be keystone in, in the ecosystems that are improving and thriving um, and, and, and therefore giving us all hope and the ability to um, have confidence that we're eating healthy food and we have resilient communities and um, you know, future generations can be grateful that we stewarded these lands for them. And the inverse right now is so many animals end up, again, the overwhelming majority of animals end up in, in feedlots or CAFOs, confined animal you know, feeding operations where you end up not with animals being moved, but animals being stationary and not with herds that are consistent with ratios of animal to acre impact, but tens of thousands of animals in, in, in very, very small systems living in absolutely 
broken ecosystems, possibly even standing on concrete, um, putting down so much manure and so much urine. And it's such a concentrated area that it becomes not beneficial, but it becomes toxic. Um, living a very sad, very sedentary, non-evolutionarily consistent life, eating a diet that isn't and, and, and not practicing or living in a way that they're able to have positive impact on the land. Similarly, eating a diet that is sourced from these row crop chemical industrial agriculture systems to feed them grains that cause them to be fat. And again, six sedentary animals become unhealthy, become unhealthy food for humans, challenge rural communities that are producing these foods. I mean, again, the list just goes on and on and on with some of the challenges of, again, trying to produce food in a way that combats the will and the intention and the um, and beautiful design of nature. So if I'm hearing you right, and if I'm a spectator listening to this episode, it's like abundantly clear that if you're going to make the most conscious, intentional decision on how to eat in a way that creates regenerative systems, that supports wildlife, that infiltrates water, that cycles carbon, that creates habitat. I mean, it's pretty damn apparent to me that Animals grazed in regenerative landscapes are where it's at. I can't think of a higher tier, um, a more beautiful system that exists in Mother Nature's image that can feed populations, heal rural communities, and serve all these other amazing tangential benefits than eating that ruminant animal coming from a regeneratively managed system. So mad respect, mad reverence for all animals out there that are gifting us fertility, gifting us nutrition, gifting us an opportunity to be co-creating amongst their beauty and grace. Amen. And finally, we arrive at the sixth principle of soil health. Now, the sixth principle was added on later by Ray Archuleta and Gabe Brown. And it was actually one that I was a little bit resistant to. I just thought it wasn't that exciting to talk about because I wanted to talk about the land. I wanted to talk about the ecosystem. I wanted to talk about the animals and the plants. But number six is talking about us. And that sometimes is the most difficult yet the most important conversation. So number six is context. The sixth principle to soil health is context. And what that means is when you wake up in the morning, go to the bathroom, look at your beautiful face in the mirror and recognize that you are a living entity, just like the world around you. And we're all different. So this regenerative agriculture movement, the principles of soil health, it's all very dynamic. It's all very contextual. So when you think about context, you have to first recognize that not all land is the same. The land that I'm managing here in Texas might be different than the land you're managing. And with that being said, it's nice to reflect on what that land once was before it was disturbed by modern agriculture. Was it hewn from a prairie? Was it hewn from a woodland or a savanna? Because there's some ecosystem wisdom embedded in that land that's going to be most conducive. Other things to consider are financial resources. Are you Bill Gates willing to invest millions of dollars into monocultures? Or is this your part-time job? Maybe it's a passion project. Maybe it's something you do when you get off of work. When you think about context, you have to think about how much time do you intend or do you have to spend on the land? Labor is a consideration. Is it just you or do you have an army of 10 children? You have to think about your spiritual connection to the land. Do you come from a culture where land is sacred? 
because how you manage that land and your relationship to that land is going to be very different in that circumstance. And then context is obviously very appropriate when you're deciding what types of animals or plants you're going to manage. If you live in Fairbanks, Alaska, and you feel like you're really missing bananas and pineapples in your life and you want to produce those locally, those plants are not going to thrive there. Likewise, if you live in the Chihuahua Desert of Mexico and you really want to, you really love yak meat, well, you're probably not going to do very well raising yaks in such a hot environment. So I think you get my point. We all have different experiences, different resources, and different values, and those need to be taken into consideration before you do everything else. And when you do that, you're setting yourself up for more success, more happiness, more joy, and a better relationship with the land. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I know that was a lot to process, but these are the six principles of soil health. They've really influenced me and my journey They've made a dramatic impact in my life. And these are the things that we teach people who want to get started, but don't know where to start in building soil health. So thank you, Robbie, Kasparis, Samson, my co-founder, my friend. Thank the listeners who tune in, who take notes, who share passion. And thank you, Mother Nature, for your brilliance and for so clearly demonstrating these six principles in action. Now, it's time to read an actual factual podcast review. This one says, Life-Changing Podcast by Just Wanna Dance. That's pretty good. I'll dance with you. Five stars. As I've gotten older and the bad news keeps piling up about humans' negative impact on nature, I've lost some hope about the future. The scale of the problem seems so big and I feel like my actions can't turn the tide. But that's exactly why I listen to every single episode of this podcast. It's helping regrow my hope. It allows me to know that my simple food purchases can help bison roam the plains again to help restore the land. It inspires me to envision a career where my skills can better support the regeneration of nature. It propels me to make sure my daughters are getting some of their diet from animals that are healing the land. And some of the episodes have even made me well up with tears as they put words to the spiritual connection I feel with the earth. Taylor and Katie, thanks for all you do and keep it up. I don't personally have a cool accent, but feel free to read this review in an (laughs) Irish accent. Oh, my heritage. I should have actually read the (laughs) review before I I read it, but that's real time. This person could have just been talking so much shit about me and I would have just read it. That's the beautiful part. Um, Irish accent, okay. I'll just have to end the show. in honor of this really sweet, very kind, amazing review. My plan is to print this out and then put it in the pocket of one of my jackets that I don't wear very often. And then who knows, maybe six, eight months, maybe two years, I'm gonna put the jacket on and I'm gonna pull that out and I'm just gonna have so much gratitude. So with my best Irish accent, I will tell you, may your pastures be emerald, May your rainbows be bright, and may your sheep be fat. All right, laddies, farewell. <laughs>